Hey listeners, Jessica here. Be sure to check out new episodes of Undetermined every Tuesday for free wherever you get your podcasts. For early and ad-free listening, check out Tenderfoot Plus on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals interviewed and participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV and Resonate Recordings. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Throughout all the twists and turns in the three years since losing Jessica, the one thing her family has always managed to cling to is hope. For Audrey, all she needs is a small token from Mother Nature to remind her she's not alone in all of this. Dragonflies are often revered as a symbol of transformation and rebirth. In some cultures, they're even believed to symbolize a link between this world and the next. Audrey tells me that the day she found her sister's body, she remembers seeing a dragonfly right there in that overgrown patch of land near the train tracks. If I'm standing right here, my sister was right there where that blue cover was. That's how close I was to her. And I just seen the most beautifulest blue dragonfly. I've never seen a blue like that before, ever. Audrey didn't make much of it at the time. It wasn't until one night after returning home to Mississippi that it sank in. As she sat on her porch that evening, thinking about her sister, she heard a buzzing sound. It was another dragonfly. And it didn't just pop in for a visit. It stuck around for some time. It was as if that little blue insect was trying to communicate with her. Audrey felt it had to mean something. And looking back on it now, she's even more convinced because these run-ins have become a regular occurrence. One time I woke up and I was crying and there was literally 20 or 30 dragonflies in my yard. They were nowhere else. They were just in my yard. And I don't know if that's just me holding on to hope or whatever, but I mean, I believe that that was my sister. For Audrey... The dragonflies are a reminder that her sister Jessica is always with her. She always has been. That gives her hope and strength to keep fighting. Momentum had now shifted in the family's favor. Jessica was finally laid to rest and her case had moved into the hands of the DA's office who were investigating it as a homicide. Things were looking up. Now, it was time to try and put Jessica's case to rest once and for all. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? 
In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all of that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. We don't know how long he saw her before 1230. He said they talked about bills, they talked about this, they talked about that. Our time in New Orleans has been quite the roller coaster. Days of phone calls, interviews, and debriefs. We've learned a lot about Jessica's case, its own roller coaster of sorts. And at this point, we feel we've discovered most everything we can. Now it's time we take a step back and examine all the pieces. Sitting inside our French Quarter hotel room, Todd and I start creating a timeline board on Jessica's case starting from January 2019, when that first message was sent to Maria from Jessica, saying she was scared. We grab the biggest bulletin board we can find and prop it up on an easel against the white brick wall. With a slew of brightly colored index cards and post-its in hand and a bold black Sharpie, we get to work pinning cards to the board for each and every notable event along with the corresponding date and time. Visually, the timeline board helps Todd and I organize and connect the dots, allowing us to really zero in on some key points along the way. Based on the timeline, here's what we know. So let's start laying it out. So we're going to start with January 16th, 2019. And This is eight months before Jessica goes missing. Right. That's the day at three o'clock in the afternoon 
she texts her friend Maria and Maria is supposed to come and visit and stay with her and Justin and she texts her and apologizes that she can't stay with her because they're fighting and she's I'm hiding in the bathroom right now so Justin doesn't hear me we've been fighting like fighting for the past three days about everything he's threatening to kick me out put me in jail he's hit me it's bad he told me you guys can't come or it's going to be worse for me Lo, I'm so sorry I know it's last minute and I feel awful I don't know what to do I can recommend somewhere that's reasonable and nice the beyond canal we stay there a lot or we used to Lo, I'm scared and Lo is the nickname she uses for Maria. Right. So then fast forward to August 12th, 2019. This day starts with an 11.07 a.m. call from Jessica to Maria. And she calls her and Maria misses the call. And she does this through Facebook Messenger. She calls a second time. There's a three minute and 11 second conversation. She calls a third time. And there's a 52-second conversation. And then at 2.43 p.m. that same day, August 12, 2019, a Facebook message from Jessica's Facebook messenger is sent to Maria. Correct. We have no way of verifying who is sending any of these messages. I want to make that clear. And she essentially, in that message on Facebook to Maria, is asking her to come and get her in that very moment. And Maria can't come right then. So they actually make plans for Maria to come the next morning and get Jessica. And the last thing that Jessica says in those Facebook Messenger... Okay, just hang on. I don't know what's going to happen when I get home. And that is the last time that Maria ever heard from Jessica. So moving into August 13th, The next day, 2019, that's the morning that Maria had planned with Jessica to come and get her. But Maria never hears from Jessica. The following day, August 14th, 2019, Jessica's family and her friend Maria start calling local shelters, hospitals, anywhere they think Jessica could be, but have no luck finding her. It's not until... 9 p.m. that night that Justin gets on Jessica's Facebook Messenger and sends a message to Maria asking if she knows where Jessica is. Is Jess with you? Grace and I are worried. If so, that's fine. We just don't know where she is and Grace can't handle stress like this right now. No, she's not. When was the last time you spoke to her? About noon today, and she left everything here. Keys, car, ID, money. What about her phone? Here, too. Fucking weird. Worried. She's never done this. I have no idea. Checked everything and everyone I know. Okay, well, I'm sending the police over there. Maria does, in fact, call in a wellness check at this time, and police confirm they'll be heading to the Durnings' residence. So... Sometime after 10 p.m., the first unit of the District 3 Police Department show up for a wellness check based off of Maria's call to them. Out of concern, 
that something has happened to her friend. Now, when they show up, they don't seem armed with that information. They think it could be an elderly person living alone or a sick person. And they meet with Justin at this time. Some notable information from that initial conversation with Justin with the two officers are that he tells them that we know that Grace likely came home from school at 3 p.m. Grace is there when he gets up. She tells him she hasn't seen Jessica. Yeah, that's his statement, yeah. Right. Uh, when he woke up at 4, she's not there. He noticed that there was a pizza made and that she was wearing jeans and a T-shirt. Sometime prior to noon that day, before he goes and takes a nap, he tells police that he and Jessica sit down, they're having a conversation, they talk over their bills, what they're going to have for dinner, things like that. And then he goes and takes his nap. Yeah, and list that that's where we first find out that all these articles a person would normally leave the house with were left behind. Her ID, her phone, all her medications, her, her wallet, uh, and the car and car keys, all there. Right. The officer admitted that the circumstances seemed suspicious, but it's important to note that police never entered the home during this first visit. The visit lasted about 15 minutes. And as the officers were leaving, they told Justin to expect a call as they'd be sending out another unit to do a missing persons report. That second unit arrived just a couple hours later. It's past midnight, so we're in we're still in the same time frame, but it is now the next day before the next officers come to the house and meet with Justin. It's about 1 a.m. when Officer Gantner and Officer Griffin arrive at Justin's house to do the missing person report. He again meets them outside, and they go to the driveway side of the house, and they go inside this time. Yeah, they walk through the house. Uh, as far as the open area, when you immediately enter from that side of the house, they're seeing the living room and the kitchen at that point. And also at this point, he lets them know that his daughter Grace and father Justin Sr. are sleeping. He offers to wake Grace up to talk to officers about Jessica, but they tell him that's okay, she's got to sleep. Justin gives his phone number to police. It is the same phone number he gives at the first stop with police. He reiterates all the things that she's left behind, which is ID, phone, medication, wallet, car, keys. And they ask to see her ID that she has left behind. And at that time, he goes to the side of the bed that is opposite of the officers at the far end of the bedroom that they're standing in and seemingly picks up Jessica's wallet from the floor. He brings it over, pulls out her ID, and we can see clearly... In the body cam footage we obtained, you can clearly see that it is a Louisiana state ID. The card is vertical, unlike their driver's licenses, which are horizontal. We can't make out all the details on it, but the officer does comment that their last names are different, implying the card reads Jessica Easterly rather than Durning. Then he starts telling them the same information of timeline to these officers that they had a conversation, that he took a nap, 
around noon, 1230, woke up at four. However, he says when he woke up around four, she was missing. But he did notice that there was and he couldn't remember what they're called. He was doing he was showing with his hands, you know, the, the pizza things that they're frozen. You cook them and they say the pizza rolls. And he said, yeah, there were pizza rolls when I woke up. So they continue speaking to him. He shows them the Facebook Messenger messages that he and Maria shared on Jessica's Facebook page. He pulls out the tablet, shows the officer that conversation. He had told them the last thing he saw her wearing was jeans and a T-shirt. She asks him, do you remember the color of her T-shirt? He tells her, I don't remember the color of her T-shirt because we were laying in bed together. After the officers finished gathering information and filling out their report, they returned to their cruiser. Officer Gantner calls her superior, Detective Anthony Lunn, to voice her concerns over Jessica's disappearance. And this essentially gets the ball rolling on a missing persons investigation. So at about 1.53 a.m., the second unit of officers who've now taken his missing persons report for Jessica leave his house. Two days later, August 17, 2019, is Jessica's 43rd birthday. Still, no one has heard from her at this point. Eight days later, from the time that she went missing, August 22nd, 2019, her family is in town and they're mapping out a search area within the Lakeview neighborhood, which they hope to be able to give to police. At 12.34 p.m., her family, her two sisters and her cousin, discover Jessica's body in an overgrown area about two and a half blocks from her home. It's about a two-minute drive from her residence. She's found wearing a black tank top, black shorts, and black shoes. At 1,305 hours, or 1.05 p.m., she's pronounced dead on the scene. So when the family found Jessica... She was laying on her side in an overgrown area just on the other side of this overpass. And we also know from a source that was at the scene who makes their living dealing with dead bodies, she had liver mortis on the outside of her knee that was the opposite knee of the knee that was touching the ground. This would imply that Jessica died laying on one side of her body but was found on the opposite side which brings up an important question. Could she have been moved to the spot sometime after her death? Just days later, on August 24th, 2019, the coroner's autopsy report would reveal other suspicious findings. In that coroner's report, they documented she had a broken nose, a broken jaw, a post-mortem broken C4 vertebrae, and a broken rib, post-mortem. We also know from the toxicology report that was included in the coroner's report that they did tissue samples from her liver and found measurable levels of methamphetamine, amphetamine, wellbutrin, which is an antidepressant, and ethanol or drinking alcohol. And the reason they could only at this point test her liver was because when she her body was recovered, she was in advanced decomposition stage. Then, on January 15th, 2020, the coroner gave their ruling on the cause and manner of Jessica's death, undetermined. 
and then things go quiet for a stretch. During this time, Audrey remains steadfast, hounding the NOPD, hoping for any new information. When out of nowhere, she gets a call from a couple in Jessica's Lakeview neighborhood. March 15th, 2020, nearly six months after Jessica's body is recovered, a couple named Chuck and Margaret find Jessica's ID in the area where her body was discovered. The ID is also a Louisiana state identification card that is vertical, not horizontal, as a driver's license would be. It also states her name as Jessica Easterly, her maiden name, and this identification expires in 2023. The ID, when they find it, appears to have been run over by a lawnmower. So when they find it, it's crumpled and a little torn, but completely legible. After police obtain the ID, the family is left wondering its significance and how this wasn't found until some seven months after Jessica's body was discovered. But after some time, the family starts to feel like this could be yet another dead end. That is, until they hear from another Lakeview neighbor, Jay Royce. October 15th, 2020, more than a year later, a man named Jay Royce notices that Justin Durning on a neighborhood app or someone using Justin's account and photo is posting about neighborhood stuff. But in those posts that he's putting into this neighborhood app, he's also posting his phone number. It is the same phone number that over a year earlier, the night he reported Jessica missing to police, it's the same phone number that he gave to them. This brings us to that text exchange between Jay Royce and an unknown individual who he believed to be Justin. As you heard in a previous episode, the text conversation got pretty volatile, and near the end of it, Jay makes some strong accusations. And this pretty much summarizes the timeline, but after stitching together this immense timeline board, we look at one of the final pinned index cards, Jay Royce text, October 15th, 2020. There's been a lot of question about who may have sent those texts to Jay Royce and whether they are a critical piece of evidence that could help solve Jessica's case or merely a random coincidence. To this point, there's not been any clear answers provided that we know of. These are important questions and their answers have an expiration date. Todd remembers that the service provider for the number in question only keep phone records with historical location for two years. After that, they are purged, meaning authorities only have until October of 2022 to preserve the records before this evidence is gone forever, along with any chance of ever identifying who sent those messages. So knowing Jessica's case had moved into the hands of the DA's office, we decide it's time to reach out to Jason Williams with an urgent recommendation. While we did not record our conversation with the DA per his request, I can share with you the context of it 
in very general terms. Most of our conversation was, of course, centered around those text messages from October of 2020. Obviously, these text messages are very concerning in nature, but they're even more concerning when compared to Jessica's case, and more specifically, her death. Here's why. We know from the coroner's report that Jessica received a broken nose and fractured jaw while still alive. This could be indicative of injuries that would occur from a fall in the bathroom, which is exactly what the individual described in their text message. She had liver mortis on the outside of her leg facing the sky, indicating she died elsewhere and was later dumped in the spot she was found. And in those text messages, when the individual was asked how she ended up there, they said they panicked and drove her there. Both of these statements are consistent with crime scene and autopsy findings that were not released to the public. Now again, no matter who sent these texts, this is considered circumstantial evidence, which is fine, but in this case, it also has potential to lead to physical or direct evidence. If Jessica really did fall in the bathroom, breaking her nose as a result, and then laid there dead for an extended time, there could still be blood present in whatever bathroom the incident occurred in. There could also be blood in the individual's vehicle as they admitted to moving her body. But police would need probable cause to obtain a search warrant, which means they need to determine who sent those text messages through historical records for that phone number. But for now, their priority should be to simply preserve these records before they are purged. That's why we referred the DA to an expert who Todd knows personally in their area. Dealing with service providers can be tricky. You have to know what you're doing in this line of expertise. So it was important that we referred someone we knew was properly qualified. But about six months later, Todd ran into that very expert whom he had recommended to the DA at a conference he was attending. Unfortunately, When Todd asked him how this case was going, he discovered that the DA never contacted him. So in January of 2022, more than a year since we spoke to the DA on the phone, and five months after his press conference announcing his cold case unit, we reached back out to him to find out if there's been any movement on Jessica's case. You've reached Curtis Alma III, communications director of the district attorney's office of New Orleans. Unfortunately... Since leaving a voicemail, we've yet to receive a call back. Aware of the clock we're up against with the text messages, we reach out to the NOPD to relay the same information regarding phone records, now with even more urgency, hoping maybe they will heed Todd's advice just in case the DA hadn't. We make a call to Lieutenant Ernest Luster, whom you may remember from a previous episode. This call was on January 25th, 2022. Hi, Lieutenant Luster. This is Todd McComas calling you back. Yes, yes. Hey, thank, first of all, thanks so much for taking time to talk to me. So basically, we found something that uh, we feel like we have to pass on to you that sure. could be important to your case. So if you got a second, maybe uh, the ability to take some notes, I'll, I'll pass it on to you real quick. Okay, so there was a, a neighbor of Justin Durning's, 
He goes he went by J. Roy. We go on to share the same recommendation with Lieutenant Luster that we shared with DA Jason Williams regarding the potential importance of the text messages and the urgent need to preserve the records. Just to let you know, we've turned uh, this active investigation over to the DA's office, so they're looking into it as well. Okay. Well, this is information we did pass on to the DA as well whenever we had to have our meeting with them. I tried to get it to you first, and I think you were on vacation or something. I wasn't able to connect with you, so I had to provide Uh this to them during that meeting. Yeah, send it to me because what I'll do is I'll send it up to the digital forensics unit because we do have one and see where, because they have the technology that can track cell phone data and locations and what towers. I'll forward this information to digital forensics and see if they can help us out. Lieutenant, you're a good man. I appreciate you for your time. Uh, Thank you. And I'll listen, send me your email address as well. I'll keep in the loop as to where we are with it. Hey, you're the man. For a long time, we waited patiently, checking in every so often for any sort of update, hoping to get confirmation the records from the phone that sent and received those text messages had been analyzed properly, or at the very least, had been preserved. And then, on January 25th, 2023, exactly one year to the date since our last conversation with Lieutenant Luster, And just weeks before this episode's release, Todd received a call from the NOPD. So they said you had information on the case? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. What did you say your name was? Detective One? Yeah, L-U-N-N. Okay. So you were working... The call is from Detective Anthony Lunn. You might remember us mentioning him earlier in the podcast. He was the missing persons investigator who was initially assigned Jessica's case back in 2019. We were surprised to learn that he had some relevant information to share about her case. Was that about a neighbor receiving texts? It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I used to be, for the Indiana State Police here, I was, uh, before I retired, I was in the electronic yeah. surveillance unit. So I was like, oh, so, yeah. yeah, this is a case like I would work all the time. So, um, yeah, so we actually looked into that actually before you sent us the info. Okay. Uh, it actually, we didn't get anything out of it. The phone's actually not to him, so. So at, at that time, even, it, it was subscribed to you by someone else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we thought oh. we had something, and then turns out it was something else. So We did a phone records request, and it was, everything came back. So you could tell by the people that phone was communicating with that, that these weren't people in, in Justin Durden's life. Like the whole profile life analysis and all that. Yeah, so we, we looked into it. We followed up with that. I mean, I can't really give you much because, I mean, it's an ongoing investigation. So. Okay. All right. So, baby, you can't say that number that the neighbor texted that, that was given on the Justin Durning profile and the next door app, that number was not in the possession of Justin Durning on that day. I mean, I can just say we we did a follow-up on it, and, I mean, the case is still open, and we're still investigating it, so. Okay. Do, do you guys have it now, or does the DA's office have it? Can I ask you that? Uh, right now, we both have it, I guess. Oh, you're just both kind of sharing duties on it? Yeah. Okay, well, two's better than one, I reckon. So that's the case. Okay, well, 
I appreciate your time. I appreciate you calling me back. Are you still with missing persons or are you in homicide now? No, I'm uh, I just deal with uh, person crimes. So robbery okay. shootings. Okay. So does this can I ask you if this sets within missing persons now or EIU or I mean it's still it's it's still listed as an unclassified death. Right. That's how it's being investigated. Can I ask you what unit that means it's it's left with? I mean, it's still with me and, I guess, DA's office now. Okay. But if you get anything else, just give me a call and we'll look into it. All right. Well, Detective Lund, I appreciate your call. To be honest, Todd was caught off guard by Lund's call, as well as what we learned from it. That's because Lieutenant Luster told us the NOPD was no longer officially investigating Jessica's case and had handed it over to the DA. But now... Detective Lund tells us that both the NOPD and the DA's office are actively working it, and that the NOPD did follow through and look into the phone records, and were able to confirm that Justin was not the user of that phone number at the time when those texts were sent. At the end of the day, this call from Lund provided some major updates in Jessica's case. Though Lund's response is helpful in trying to understand the origin of the messages, the vague nature of it does leave a lot unanswered. On the technical side, saying, we looked into that, does not answer other important questions, such as what type of records they obtained, who analyzed them, and what type of analysis was conducted. In other words, it doesn't tell us how they reached their conclusion, and furthermore, who sent those text messages. In discussing this with Todd and piggybacking off of his original recommendation to the DA and Lieutenant Luster, we made several attempts to follow up with Detective Lund over the phone, but we have yet to receive a call back. With that, we shifted our focus back to the other agency we've been told is working Jessica's case, the DA's office. Maybe they can shed some more light on everything. If they are working the case, one of my questions to them would be if they did their own analysis of those phone records, as Todd recommended, among other things. The problem is, we don't know who at the DA's office is working this case. That's something we've been trying to determine for over a year now. Todd asked Detective Lund via text if he knew who the investigator was at the DA's office, but he never received a reply. So we're left to try and figure this out ourselves. We start by visiting the DA's website. We see that he has a page dedicated to the cold case unit, supposedly overseeing Jessica's case, with a phone number and the following promise. The cold case unit of the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office is charged with getting murderers off the streets and bringing healing to families. So we call that number. Good afternoon. How may I help you? Hi. May I speak to the District Attorney's cold case unit? Okay. What are you calling in regards to? I'm calling about the Jessica Easterly Durning case. Okay, so they have your information. I remember speaking with you. Just to clarify, I had called the DA before. This was just the first time I'd called the front desk asking specifically for the cold case unit. 
Is it Justice for Jessica? Do you know that website? I do know that website, but that is not, I'm not Audrey. She seems to think I'm Jessica's sister, Audrey. I try to clarify. Well, I'm not affiliated with that website. I just know of it. Okay, but what's your relation to Jessica? I am an investigative journalist. I'm working on a podcast about her case, and I attended the press conference and spoke to the district attorney, Jason Williams, last year about the cold case unit and her case, and I just wanted to do a follow-up to see where things Okay, could. okay. So you're not a family member? No, ma'am. All right. Well, let me give you Kendra's email address, and you can email Jason's assistant, and um, they'll take it from here. So, without any further information about the cold case unit or Jessica's case, we take the woman's recommendation and reach out via email to Kendrick, the DA's executive assistant. While he's unable to set up a meeting for us with the DA, stating that Jason Williams is in the middle of prosecuting two murder trials, he does offer us two investigators within the cold case unit to call. Hello? Hi, Naomi Jones? Yes. Hi, Naomi. This is Todd McComas. And I'm calling you about a specific case you may or may not be assigned to, and that's the Jessica Easterly-Durning case. The what? Jessica Easterly-Durning case. I am not assigned to that. Okay. Are you, are you currently assigned to the cold case unit at the uh, DA's office? Yes, I'm in the sexual assault kit initiative unit. Oh, okay. Which does cold cases. Okay. But you are not assigned or working in any way on Jessica Easterly Durning's death investigation? No. No, I am not. Would you, by chance, know who is? I do not. Okay. You're just not familiar with the case at all? Uh, I mean, I've seen it in the news. But other than that, no, I'm, I'm not familiar. No luck with the first detective. So we try the other detective he recommended. Hi, can I speak with uh, Mary Glass, please? She's actually not in yet. Can I take a message? Uh, yeah, that'd be fine. My name is Todd McComas, and I have some questions about your unit. Do you work within the same unit? I do. Oh, okay. Is this, I believe, the DNA unit? Um, no. We work specifically on uh, cold case sexual assaults. Oh, okay. Do you have a cold case homicide unit there? Within the DA's you office? Know, I work in my little corner and I don't know. Um, but let me give you a So Kendrick's contacts for the cold case unit weren't exactly helpful. But then we remember that we do know of one other detective within the DA's office. The one who was initially assigned Jessica's case and who I met briefly at the DA's press conference, Detective Joe Lorenzo. Looking him up online, It appears as though he may have left his position at the DA's office and moved into real estate. Nonetheless, we're hopeful he can provide some information as to where the case stood when he left. Hello? Hi, is this Joe? Yes. Hey, Joe, my name is Todd McComas. I'm a retired detective with the Indiana State Police, and uh, currently I work with Resonate Recordings that's doing the uh, Jessica Easterly Durning case. I don't have anything to say, brother. Thank you. Okay. Are you retired? So, no help from the former investigator either. In a moment of pure frustration, 
Todd tries the cold case phone number listed on the district attorney's website one more time. And this time, we seem to be getting somewhere. The woman at the desk gives us contact information for the DA's first assistant, Ned McGowan. We promptly make a call. Ned McGowan. Is not available at the moment. At the tone, record your message. To end your recording, press number sign. To reach an operator, press zero. Hi, Ned. My name's Todd McComas. I am currently working with Resonate Recordings, that is doing the podcast on the Jessica Easterly Durning case. For months now, <laughs> I've been trying to just get a simple answer from someone at the DA's office to answer the question, does the DA's office have a cold case homicide unit? Is your office actually investigating cold case homicides or members of your cold case homicide unit actively working the Jessica Easterly Durning case? As of this episode's release, we have not been able to confirm who at the DA's office is investigating Jessica's case or if there is even a detective assigned to investigating homicides in their cold case unit. I also want to point out that the family has not heard from anyone in the DA's office since the press conference a year and a half ago, despite numerous calls and in-person visits from Audrey. I find myself in familiar territory yet again, with many questions and very few answers. The same place that Jessica's family has become all too familiar with over the years. As you know, D.A. Williams called that press conference to address the thousands of unsolved homicides in New Orleans and announce his intentions of establishing a dedicated cold case unit with Jessica as a proverbial poster child for that endeavor. He also publicly announced for the first time that her death would be investigated as a homicide. But for now, the status of the investigation remains unknown, despite any recommendations we've given to the DA directly. For Todd and I, finding out who, if anyone, is investigating Jessica's death has felt more challenging than discovering what happened to her in the first place. And simply put, that's not okay. Jessica's not just a case number. She's not just a poster child for cold case unit initiatives. She was a human being, and she was loved. Jessica, like so many of us, was a woman who was finding her way. She wanted a family and a happily ever after. And with so much of her life hidden away, it's hard to say exactly what was happening behind the curtain. Jessica's family entrusted Todd and I to tell her story with respect, empathy, and compassion. Our goal was to do just that and hopefully bring more awareness to her case, uncover truths about her suspicious death, and shed light on her investigation. But along the way, we uncovered a systemic issue in the city of New Orleans. Jessica's case is just one of countless others that have gone unsolved by a system whose main players don't seem to be on the same page. On one hand, we have a coroner who has ruled both her cause and manner of death as undetermined and told us that their work is done 
until the NOPD gives them more evidence to rule her manner of death as anything else. On the other hand, we have the person who supervises NOPD detectives tell us that they're not allowed to investigate an undetermined death. And in addition to all of this, we now have a detective telling us that despite that classification, he is still actively working her case. Until someone in authority reevaluates this process and takes some sort of action, questions surrounding Jessica's suspicious death remain unanswered and her case remains undetermined. So where do we go from here? Well, even if there is someone assigned to investigate Jessica's case, as Detective Lund told us, why not seek additional resources? We know there are other agencies who, if invited in, could assist in the investigation. One such agency is the Louisiana State Police's Bureau of Investigations. But they can only join existing investigations upon request by local law enforcement, an invitation, if you will. And the person who holds the reins of the New Orleans Police Department is the superintendent, and her superior is the mayor of New Orleans who appoints the superintendent. So with that said, here's what can be done. Mayor LaToya Cantrell can encourage NOPD Superintendent Michelle Woodfork to extend an invitation to the Louisiana State Police to help investigate Jessica's case. We worked with Jessica's sister, Audrey, to create a new petition on change.org asking the mayor of New Orleans to do just that. You can sign the petition at change.org slash justice, the number four, Jess, or on our website, undeterminedpod.com. I encourage you to read the petition and consider signing it in hopes that Jessica's case can get the help it needs so her family can get a step closer to answers. Thank you to all who participate, and thank you for listening. Undetermined is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Jessica Knoll, and produced by Dennis Cooper and Todd McComas, with additional production by Whitney Bozarth. Executive producers are Dennis Cooper, Mark Minnery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Caleb Melcher, Dayton Cole, and Pat Kicklider of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Voice acting by Sabrina Seward, Whitney Bozart, and Paul Freilds. 
You can follow Undetermined Podcast on Facebook and on Twitter at Undetermined Pod. Show notes as well as bonus content can be found on our website, undeterminedpod.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And finally, if you have any information about this case, call Crime Stoppers at 1-877-903-7867. The tone and inflection used by voice actors is not contextually accurate and is a matter of creative interpretation.